Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.therapistinsaintlouis.com, and you can also find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. And today we are talking with the masked therapist. I don't know if I'm saying that very well. <laughs> Hello, masked therapist. <laughs> Do you Hello, want me to Angela? Thank you so much for the introduction. Of course. Do you want me to call you that or do you want to come up with a fun sidekick name? <laughs> Cuz that's going to be hard to say every time. <laughs> I think you can do it. Mask therapist. It's pretty right. prevalent now. We it is. Use that word, mask. It's important. No, that's true. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> no, you're so right. So <laughs> That's so true. As you were saying that, I was thinking of like all the masks I saw at lunch. I was literally at lunch before our show and it's like mask, mask, mask. I'm like, I guess you're right. Like that's just life. So you're correct. I need to learn to just say masked. So uh, (laughs) today I'm having you on because I'm going to talk about a lot of things. Um, Today's episode is a lot about social justice and uh, Black Lives Matter movement, racism. And so I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, what's going on in our world? And I know I'm jumping right in, but I'm curious kind of what your initial thoughts are. And I'm just going to poke all kinds of questions into it. <laughs> so what are your all right. thoughts? Let's dive in. Let's dive. You know, I think that this is a very prominent time. Um, we are in a real good time, actually. I know that's probably not how people feel and see it. However, in order to make real, positive, permanent change, you have to shake things up. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to um, poke people's, you know, bears and get them riled (laughs) up and fired underneath their belly so they can be able to see that, you know, things need to change. Because when people are in a place of complacency, Mm -hmm. apathy, and comfort, they don't see the change, right? If it doesn't impact yeah. them directly, it doesn't. It's not a concern. So, what so better I, time than when we've ruined the entire world to, <laughs> <laughs> to really address serious issues about racial injustice? Yes. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So, I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. (laughs) Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group 
hope is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically, they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked Laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. You know, like being in a pandemic and then you got mm-hmm. the extra pandemic of being black in the world, you know, so Absolutely. it's a double pandemic. Mm-hmm. And what this is the greatest time in the world to be able to, you know, make permanent positive change. So that's my thoughts about it. Actually. What are some of the things you want to see changing masked therapists? <laughs> Oh, thank you for saying I know, that. I was very thoughtful so of it. eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> the things that I want to see change, right? So yeah. first and foremost, you know, we're talking a lot now in the political climate about defunding the police. So I think a lot of people, when they hear that term, they become really anxious because they they respect law enforcement. They mm-hmm. believe law enforcement should be around. So let me address that issue. Defunding the police does not mean um, eradicating the police department or getting rid of local law enforcement in your area. Defunding the police is something that has been around for probably 15 years now. It's just that people are unaware of it. So, for example, I'm located in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And in the state of California, when they have mental health crises where the police are alerted to respond on site, they have what they call a PERT team, which is the Psychiatric Emergency Response Team. And this team is a team of clinicians that have been um, vetted by the city or the state to be able to go out on site with the police officers to kind of exemplify some de-escalation tactics, get some assessment of the mental health needs and concerns of the person where the police have been alerted to respond. So that is one way that's been in place for years in the state of California and in other large major cities as well. So it's a resource. It's not like we can't have police because honestly, cities need police, but it is an added benefit as a resource for when they're doing something that's probably a little bit above and beyond their job, right? Yes, right. So it's not actually, it's, it's more important than a resource. It is them actually uh, placing those responsibilities in the correct hands of professionals. Mm-hmm. So if it's a mental health concern, they are eliciting professional licensed clinicians to come out and support that mental health concern. That if it is 
something related to social working. Like, for example, if someone goes to the DMV and they're homeless, instead of calling 911 to get help, you will call a social worker that's affiliated with the police department that can come out and support them. You know, yeah. and get them the appropriate referrals that they need. Well, because like- that's a common complaint from the police officers. So I talk to all parties because it's important to me. And police officers also often say things like, we're expected to take on a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs that, and, and as a result, they kind of become jacks of multiple trades and not quite masters of none. So this is an example of, them getting, I guess, I don't know what term you want to use, but like a very valuable resource of the kind of person that should be there, not necessarily the police, but the police are there for in case it escalates and becomes dangerous, but really just having resources for what the real problem is, correct? Right. So they are, you know, again, calling on people who are trained professionals to be able to assist with that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so police are called in for so many things, so many ministry things, like a nuisance call. My neighbor's radio is too loud. Or, you know, <laughs> I did that person, the other day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the person is walking down the street, you know, with a, a car, you know, come and help. And so these are a lot of things that when you use the term defund the police, you can actually, um, have professionals that can come out and support them and the police can be there to protect and serve in other ways that are within the realm of their job duties and descriptions. That sounds wonderful. And I mean, masked therapists, you have a little bit of a understanding of what sometimes the police go through, correct? Um, You're not a police officer by any means, but you have family members-ish that have been in the police, so you know a little something about some of their challenges, correct? So my mother worked for the St. Louis City Police Department in the state of Missouri for over 20 plus years. Um, She retired in 2000 and I want to say like 15 and God rest her soul, she's in heaven now. So I have background of working with the police. I also have a minor in criminal justice and a bachelor's in political science. So um, it's more than just being affiliated with the police. I do have some fundamental knowledge of the workings of the criminal justice system in the political science realm as well. What are some of the things that you feel... So just giving kind of a broad spectrum of the ways that maybe the police are being stretched too thin. Well, I could say, for example, one of the ways I think the police are being stretched too thin is, again, you know, because I reside in the state of California, um, they are called for you know, helping the transient population. So, uh, and that can get kind of sticky, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when they are called to remove a transient person that has nowhere to live, or they are called to step in and uh, resolve civil disputes between neighbors, you know? Mm-hmm. For example, let's just point out this mass issue, right? Okay. So... You have people that might be walking or jogging in your neighborhood. 
and they don't have a max on. But you have neighbors that decide to step in and say, hey, you need to wear a mask. And then that discussion gets out of hand. It becomes a big altercation. And then the police are called to kind of resolve that. Okay. Um, I think that in that instance, if there is no guns involved, um, and there is no threats of killing or violence where the police should be called, then that's where we can kind of elicit some um, other people. Like, for example, some licensed clinicians, or you can have like a citizens board that can be able to step in or a train to be able to de-escalate neighborhood or neighbor issues. So then they could be there, for example, if someone is trying to kill their wife, they can be able to respond to that call instead of responding to a neighbor, a neighbor dispute over wearing masks. I hope that's clear. No, it's very clear. I was thinking of this, oh, I can't remember the exact story, but basically this woman who was kind of belligerent about these people who are barbecuing out on a, a beach or a park and um and like she kept calling the cops and they were like why are you bugging us you know and the reality is 911 is still an emergency space people need to be able to call and get help right but she was she was clearly i don't know belligerent acting kind of weird like it didn't these were just people who are barbecuing on a beach you know and they didn't need to be bugged but the police maybe need, it sounds like you, you feel like there needs to be some sort of hierarchy or triangle or something where it's like, if you're at the top of this triangle, you get the help. But I guess, oh, well, now that I'm thinking about that, though, what would be some of the challenges you see in trying to implement something like that? One of the challenges is you have to be able to set up a system where you can track it, that people are actually trained, um, and they are they have the respect from the citizens in the neighborhood and in that area. So you have to be able to educate the residents of the importance and the duties and responsibilities of this type of intervention. Um, and it should be respected because police officers do go through a lot of things, Angela. Um, and <laughs> Thanks for calling think, me out on that. I believe that's true. <laughs> I think that people, what people don't realize is that human beings can be very irrational mm -hmm. most of the time. <laughs> I think that people think that human beings are rational most of the time. However, with my experience with interacting with people, they can be irrational most of the time. <laughs> and so, you know... This is like as simple as a police officer saying, hey, you know, there's a crosswalk. Can you please cross the crosswalk instead of crossing the middle of the street because it can um, potentially be a safety hazard. And then someone screaming belligerently at the police because they directed them across the street. Yeah, I guess the there's a lot of that. I mean, do you do you see that? Well, and then I know um, I'm just asking you based on your opinion, but. Do you think that a lot of police officers kind of struggle with that? Like that feeling of people are kind of irrational and I have to deal with irrational people a lot. 
I do think that police officers struggle with that. And I'm not sure if they have the proper training to be able to handle that um, because they're human beings, too. And yeah. so they might have a bad day before they go to work and then someone's screaming at them because someone called the police and told them to put on the mask and they didn't want to do it. For example, there was a guy and this became national news where he was in Pennsylvania uh-huh. and um, I believe he was at a store. I want to say Walmart. Let me Google it here so I can get my facts straight. But uh, <laughs> we can always put in a little caveat later. <laughs> uh, masked therapist. <laughs> uh, but basically, they called the police on him um, because he got belligerent because he didn't want to wear a mask in this store. Mm. Um, and he pulled out a gun on the persons at the store. Ooh. And then the police ended up locating him at his home. And then he shot at them with an AK. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's horrible. You know, that is just one example where one small little direction, hey, please wear a mask so you can be able to support the health crisis here and and slow down the spread of coronavirus, escalated into this man having a full shootout with the police. Um, Mm -hmm. And then one thing I want to point out is that he was shot at, but he lived and um, he's up for, you know, charges at this time. And he was Caucasian. So with that being said, there's another story about a woman with her kid in Brooklyn going on the subway who was a person of color mm-hmm. and she had a mask on her person. She had it underneath her neck. And so the police were called to tell her to put the mask on her face and cover up her nose and her mouth. And then that escalated again. I believe she felt some type of way where she didn't like the approach of how they asked her to do it. It was several police officers. Not sure why five police officers had to show up for a a mother with a child to put her mask on. But that's how the approach was handled and then it it ended with her being um placing handcuffs um a lot of police officers around her she ended up on the floor she's screaming and yelling she was not charged she was not arrested but she was escorted out of the subway so Things of this nature, I think, where law enforcement now are placed into a position of thinking of more better ways to um, intervene in these type of issues. Because when police show up, they already have the power, in my eyes. They have a gun, they have a badge, and they have the city, the state. And ordinance backing them saying that you have to do whatever you deem necessary to be able to get control of this issue. Okay. And so I think that is a problem um, because some police officers may not be aware of their power or they may be too aware of their power. And so there can be some exertion in that um, that can lead to a lot of unfortunate interventions or death that could have been avoided. Just to add to that, um, you know, so you and I are both therapists. You're the masked. I'm unmasked, at least in this 
podcast recording. But the point is that in our field, we are aware of the position of power that we hold. And so as a result, we are trained kind of from the get-go to be aware of that power, to be very cautious and thoughtful of how that power can be used against others. They teach us different research. And I'm not saying it's even the perfect training. I'm just saying that I remember going in, seeing ways that mental health was used to harm others and teaching us that we need to hold that in high regard and be very respectful of the fact that we can really hurt other people. And so to be careful, basically. And so the way I kind of see the police is very similar in that I would like them to almost be regarded as therapists in some ways, but like with that police and violence intervention, because there is a reality, as you're saying, that it's their job to intervene when it's an unsafe, like a severely unsafe situation. But I don't know to what degree there is training for them to kind of address that power dynamic and really own it, but be respectful of it. What are your thoughts about that? So I know police officers do go through training. Of they course. They do have a sense of de-escalation training and they do have intervention training. Um, I think there could be better assessments and closer training on processes and thoughts around the power dynamics between Mm -hmm. citizens and police officers. So I think that's one part that law enforcement agencies are now discussing. Mm -hmm. Um, I know myself later on today, actually, I will be on a Zoom conference um, discussing that so I can volunteer as a citizen in my local area to be able to help law enforcement gain the proper training that they need to intervene in these issues where it can de-escalate the concern instead of escalating the concern. So one of the things I want to point out, and this is a, something that I experienced. So I was here exercising my citizenship and protesting for Black Lives Matter in California. And the encounters I had with the police officers at each protest were very positive. Um, Two of the protests that I attended, the police officers were present. They were escorting the protest, the march, Mm -hmm. and they were actually part of it. And one of the things that I saw that citizens were doing that I don't necessarily agree of, but I do understand the anger. So I want to explain this. So they had citizens who saw the police officers blocking the highways and the roads so the cars won't hit the protesters or there won't be any conflict with traffic in the march. And those people, part of the protest, decided, hey, I'm going to go up to these police officers and yell in their face and tell them how they're pigs and they're horrible people. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I view is these police officers are here supporting the clause. They are here blocking the traffic to make sure that it, it stays and remains peaceful. Oh. And there's no type of physical altercations where the police need to be present. Mm-hmm. I don't think us as the people who are here peaceably protesting should go up in their face 
and blame these specific police officers for other police officers' bad actions, such as mm-hmm. the Joy Floyd, Breonna Taylor yeah. incidents, right? There are bad and, incidents. We need to make them very aware and present. And like that's why we want this reform, you know? Right. And at the same time, our anger shouldn't be freely displaced to every police officer we see. Mm-hmm. So it should be directed to the ones who actually did the things that they should be held accountable for. For example, like the Brianna Taylor officers who shot and killed her in her home for doing a no-knock uh, warrant invasion. Mm-hmm. And they already had the person in custody that they were looking for. And so those police officers should be held accountable, not the ones who are out here trying to protect and serve the peaceful protesters. Well, I think that's a hard part of this, too, is that in any group, there really can be people who take advantage of the bad situations or like laws that are there to protect them. Right. And so as a result, there really are cops that are out there trying to do their best. And there are cops that are taking advantage of the system. And somehow, you know, part of this is that we need to change the system, but that doesn't mean we need to penalize people who are still trying to do the best that they can. Like, to your point, I was in some protests for Black Lives Matter, too, and I, you know, I certainly didn't scream in any of their faces. In fact, for the ones who were really standing there and supporting us, I said thank you to them because I'm aware we're protesting them. (laughs) Like, we're protesting not all of them, but like any inappropriate causes, any appropriate legal or laws that are getting in the way, you know, like things, and and some of it has to do with any system has an ability to essentially take advantage of. And so some of what we're protesting here is a system that has multiple flaws and it's not, but people are in that system. So people are working within a system essentially that's flawed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, we're protesting the unlawful detainers. We're protesting the arrests that end in deaths. We're protesting... Without a jury, you know, or like some sort of... Right, you know? Yeah. We're protesting people who are dying at the hands of a traffic stop pullover who are unarmed and in no way a threat to the police officer. And we are protesting racial injustice... And we are protesting racial profiling. So, exactly. Again, one of the protests that I attended here in Southern California, um, the police officers were blocking off the highway exit onto the street where we were marching. And around me, you know, Southern California, California in general, is a very diverse population. So the march was consisting of very diverse population. Mm-hmm. And next to me, there were Caucasian youth. They had to be in like their early 20s, mid 20s. And then in front of me and around me, there were persons of color. So we're marching. The Caucasian youth see the police officer standing individually by himself, blocking the highway exit so we don't get hit by people coming off of that highway. They run directly over there to his face, call him a pig. Oh, my He's God. Just, you know, all of these <laughs> obscenities. And, um, and then so what me and this other lady did, we stepped in and we said, hey, leave him alone. 
he didn't do anything. He's helping us. He's part of this process of keeping us safe and he's serving us by blocking this highway. So get out of his face, please. And I want a preference because when we talk about this issue, which is so important, Mm -hmm. we have so many different philosophies and views and opinions around police brutality, (laughs) racial profiling and law enforcement. And so I bring this example up is because the youth did stop with our intervention. Mm-hmm. Who knows how this could have escalated? Because I saw the police officer's face. He was white. His face turned red. You know, now he's sweating. He's yeah. clenching to his gun. Mm-hmm. Who knows how he would have responded? He's to essentially this in his fight or flight. You know, exactly. He's feeling unsafe. And his whole job there is to be safe, and he is there to support us. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, as a clinician, I wonder what went through his thoughts after this all ended. And if he thought, man, I don't want to go and serve these marches anymore because people, you know, are berating me just because I'm a police officer and I'm out here to help you. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give the view of the police officers from a person who supports Black Lives Matter and say, I am not in support of that type of behavior and interaction. Because in still, that's a human being who's fulfilling a job duty, who's trying to protect and serve peaceful protests, Mm -hmm. and he's being berated. Yeah, and I think it's very hard. Like, that's, that's, I think that's the big um, challenge for people in law enforcement is that they, they really do have a lot of jobs. And one of the jobs is to support a protest that is kind of against them. You know, like, I don't know how easy it is to do that, but there are law enforcement officers who are really trying to be supportive. There are some who have uh, marched alongside. And like you said, they're even just supporting a peacefulness in that, like, they're keeping you from getting hit by traffic. And the reality is they play a lot of roles in our protection and our support. And we have to kind of look at all angles. I think that since... And serving us. Uh-huh. And serving the community. So there's a lot to do. Right. And so we need to be able to, you know, acknowledge their hard work mm-hmm. and acknowledge their duties that they do in serving the community. At the same time, holding police officers accountable I for agree. unlawful arrest, detainment, mm-hmm. and stops and death when it becomes in a racial profiling issue. Because that is happening at a a higher rate. Like, to be fair, we still have to put this into racial profiling, racial injustice, right? Which means that at a higher rate, African-Americans, people of color are being detained, um, facing severe consequences, consequences that sometimes result in death, um, unintentionally and definitely not okay. (laughs) Like sometimes intentionally, that's the point. Like, like it's become a problem to the point that like we're seeing the racial injustice in the law enforcement and it's showing itself in the way that the law is either taking care of people or not, or serving justice or not. What are your thoughts about some of that? Yes, Angela, you bring up a good point. The rates of persons of color is being mm-hmm. 
killed by police officers doing these interventions um, are higher. And they're higher for a reason that, especially in the Black community, since the last census that was created by the United States, there were, it's only, it's actually under 13% population of African Americans, Black Americans in the United States. Okay. That's a very small amount. So if you're starting from a small population of people in a country, and then you look at the numbers around their interactions with police officers and how they're in in depth, then that's how you get the higher rate within Mm -hmm. that population of an already small population of people in the United States. And that should be questioned. Mm -hmm. That's something that should be stopped. And that's why I pointed out the guy who was in Pennsylvania who was able to live and be charged and be held accountable for his actions in court. And he had an AK-47. And poor George Floyd happened to present a counterfeit $20 bill at a convenience store in the neighborhood, and he died. Mm -hmm. That's a great discrepancy. And that's something that shouldn't happen. For example, the issue of Mike Brown in St. Louis and Ferguson over a cigarette, he died. Mm -hmm. And then his body was left on the concrete in the street for hours before it moved. Those things shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Taymor Rice shouldn't have died. Eric Gardner shouldn't have died. You know, youth are being shot and killed by police. These are unarmed people. They shouldn't have died. What do you think? Where is needs the threat? What, Where is the if you I, I there isn't a threat and I'm curious what do you think we need to do? Like if you and I'm not asking you to solve all the world's problems because that's not fair. It's not fair to ask a masked therapist to do that. <laughs> but I am curious, when you look at kind of the bigger, broader picture like that, what are the things you think need to happen to help? Well, one of the things that they're doing is they are um, training, reteaching, and removing policies that protect this type of unlawful arrest and detainment and death. They're holding police officers more accountable. So one thing is that people point out is that police officers are trained to kill. Mm-hmm. So I want to bring this, I like to bring examples and broaden this out, okay? Okay. Anybody who has a gun is trained to kill. But you have the choice on whether or not you want to kill them or just wound them. So, for example, if Missouri has a state where people can have guns and they can carry them in public, when you go to the gun range and you're practicing, you're training yourself to be able to kill someone if necessary. So it's the last resort. Mm -hmm. The last resort is to kill the person. Not the first resort. 
And so that's what I want people to understand. Just because when they bring out that gun and they shoot it, they are trained to kill. Anybody who owns a gun is trained to kill. Hunters are trained to kill. That's the purpose of the gun. Mm-hmm. But that's the last resort. Unless you're hunting people, are, are we hunting unarmed people doing traffic stops? Well, and that's something I think we need dispute? to consider is are we training the cops or police officers to go into these levels, right? Of when is this actually something that requires um, requires that kind of intervention versus when is this something that could be de-escalated in a more reasonable way without a gun? And I, I don't know, I, I sometimes struggle with my understanding of that because I've I've talked uh, with a lot of people about demilitar how do you say this right demilitarization of the police is something I've heard a lot about like um, how do we train people to de-escalate more rather than seeing people as threats because there is there is a certain kind of training that's going on with uh, law enforcement that is very much about you need to kill or be killed you need to be aware of anybody potentially harming you and there is a reality that there that can happen but like you said, not necessarily at a, like at a traffic, um, not necessarily at a stoplight. <laughs> I, I don't know. And, and it's hard because I guess I'm not sure where those lines should be. You know what I'm saying? So I want to point out. So Sandra Bland, uh-huh. right? She died in custody for being pulled over because she didn't turn on her blinker. So... I want to bring this up because I experienced, as you know, in April 17th, I just found the warning ticket today Mm -hmm. by being pulled over by the police. And I think of Sandra Bland and I responded in a way, every time I tell the story, people say, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, I would have exerted my rights. Mm Mm-hmm. But I didn't do any of that. I complied with the police officer's request, and I'm here today to live. Mm -hmm. But I think about every time I tell that story of how I got stopped by the police, and I definitely believe I was stopped because I was Black. And I was in a very small rural community that is predominantly white, and there were no persons of colors in that area at all at the time that I got stopped, and it was in broad daylight, if I would have exerted my right to not have my car searched, to not have the police officer tell me to get in his truck while he write me a warning ticket, if I would have said no at any time, would I be here today? That's the question I ask myself because I have an example of a soul who lost her life because she decided to exert her rights as a citizen and protect herself when she felt like the police that pulled her over was inappropriately mishandling a traffic stop. Mm -hmm. So you ask the question, what can we do, right? So there are examples in Los Angeles, California, in New Jersey, in the state of Washington, in a city in the Midwest, of police officers who dismantled 
their law enforcement departments, build it back up from the ground up and started implementing different tactics to be able to handle lower response calls. And it increased community engagement, civil respect between the law enforcement, and decreased police brutality and killings within that area. And so there are models out there now that can be used and implemented. And depending on the location and the demographics of that community, it can be used. So right now where I live in California, they got rid of the chokeholds that was used in the George Floyd death, Mm -hmm. murder. Um, So they got rid of that tactic that intervention. And we will continue to discuss how police officers can effectively handle someone screaming in their face. So as a clinician, you know, it's really hard to have someone attacking your character, telling you you're something that you're not, and threatening you, and not wanting to naturally respond to protect yourself. But as law enforcement, and I think you said it without saying it, Angela, Mm -hmm. when you signed up to be a police officer, you already knew from day one that it's a potential risk of you dying. Mm -hmm. And it's a higher potential risk of you dying. So my question that I get to police officers, if you are so afraid of dying, why did you sign up to be a police officer? That's a really interesting question and something that, you know, that just really resonates with me as you speak is that, I mean, if I break it down, it's human rights violations. So I think in all of these stories, what I see is some sense of, I don't know if entitlement is the right word, but the sense of like where I see the racial injustice and you can not agree with me, but like, I feel like there are certain extra entitlements that are taken with people of color at times that wouldn't be taken with white people. Um, Like for example, and you didn't tell the whole story and that's okay. It's your choice to tell your story or not tell it. But like I've, I'm a white person. I've, I've never sat in a cop's car. I've never sat in a cop's car. Um, I, you know, I think of the different stories I've heard um, from different African-American people where they, they're like, keep their hands on the wheels. Don't, um, don't say anything. Like, I think a white person can say those things and get away with it. That you're talking about like asserting their rights. I really do. I, I see that. And I, I don't think that people are always aware of the way that they have this way of racially profiling. And so one of the things that I personally would like to see in law enforcement is an understanding of how you can be racially prejudiced or racially biased, not in a way to direct at people or to make people feel like they're terrible people, but like a way to just very directly say, look, there, how, like, here's the, here's the human right 
and how is this person being disrespectful to a person of color? And would that have happened with a white person? Seriously, look at this. Like, could you find yourself doing stuff like that? Because I feel, and I don't know what's being done in that area either, but like, I would really like to see just training about that, about ways that people can profile and make choices and like treat because we do, like, I I believe that I've seen enough evidence of racial profiling and racial injustice, like human rights injustices that are just allowed because of the way they've been trained at times. Um, what are your thoughts, though? Because I'm, I was just kind of rambling, but there's just my feelings about it. So some police departments do train their officers to have better understanding of responding to certain communities, groups, and cultures. So they have what you call diversity and inclusion training. Okay. And some of the training could be detailed. Some of the training is more of cultural competency. So there's a difference between being culturally competent Mm -hmm. and being able to culturally implement cultural humility. So then you ask, what is cultural humility? Okay. Cultural humility is open yourself up to the possibility that you have a fundamental knowledge of this culture, but you need to learn more. Mm-hmm. And there are some vulnerabilities within that lack of knowledge and that bias you may have. So you're opening yourself up to be able to hear and listen to a different culture's perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think that conversation, that piece is not being educated within these diversity and inclusion trainings within the law enforcement community or in general. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lack there. And even that word humility, it's an interesting word to use, but I mean, it, it, it kind of involves embracing the fact that you could not know things. You could maybe lack understanding. But like, what's funny about it is I think that when people can embrace humility or another way I might put that is self-awareness, like deep self-awareness of the fact that you don't know certain things and getting comfortable in that space, that there's a lot of growth that can occur as a result of that. There's a lot of compassion that can, can, can occur as a result of that. But it's not humility, that word in particular, is not something I think I've ever heard in a police training. <laughs> no. So, and then I want to point out, Angela, not to, not to, uh, I want to point something out you point did. Point it out. Okay. That a lot of people do. Right? All right. So you changed the word humility to self-awareness. And my question is, is there an uncomfortability with you being humble? to someone's culture. Is there an uncomfortability with the term humility? No, but I do know I am very aware of other people's uncomfortableness. So what I do, just thank you for pointing it out, but like as a therapist, because I'm a therapist, sometimes I'll shift the word so that a person who's listening, like one of my audience members, can hear it in a new way and they might be able to take it in. Because what I have learned is that word humility is a trigger word for some people. So a lot of what I do 
actually even in my interviewing processes, shifting words and phrases so that people can even hear hard things in a new way. But no, I believe in humility and I think it's valuable personally. Excellent. So just how you (laughs) pointed out, people take that term humility and they might view it in a sense of weakness. Yes, they do. That's why I said self-awareness because of that weakness piece. So, (laughs) and I want people to get more comfortable with the word humility. I agree. And seeing it as a sense of empowerment, that you are be a, that you are able to place yourself in a position where you are aware that you lack a certain knowledge mm-hmm. or information, or you are placed in a position to be vulnerable to hear someone else's pain from a point of view that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. That's what cultural humility is. And mm-hmm. not just in the law enforcement, in our field, cultural humility is not taught. What we are taught is cultural competency. What we are taught is cultural diversity and inclusion. Some we basic not, level things, but nothing very deep. Nothing to the root of saying, hey, I really don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I have no experience of that. And honestly, I don't agree. However, I'm going to put myself in a position to be open to hear what you're saying mm-hmm. and to learn from what you're saying, even though if I walk away from this discussion, I'm still holding on to my principles. I'm still holding on to my values. But I have gained a sense of knowledge that I did not have before. And then I'm going to work out later through my daily activities or life or experiences to see if some way I can implement that knowledge that I gain. That is what cultural humility is. So not just law enforcement people, citizens lack cultural humility. We don't have it. And I think this is something that we need to discuss. And we need to educate everyone that is living in a community where everyone is an individual. Just because we have the same skin color, or I'm a woman, or I'm a clinician, or I'm a police officer, or I'm a doctor, mm-hmm. or I'm a person living on the street, does not mean I have the same thoughts and values of you. I think it is presumptuous. And foolish to think that all white people think the same or all black people think the same or all Latino think the same because they're white, black, and Latino or Latinx. That is foolish. And so when you exercise cultural humility, you are seeing this person as an individual. You are not seeing them as a black person you saw on TV. Mm-hmm. You are not seeing them as a black person you read in a book or in a story or in a hard news incident. You are seeing them as an individual that you pulled over because they didn't use their right turning signal and you just wanted to execute them. Hey, I saw you didn't use your right turning signal. I just want to check in with you and see what's going on with you today. 
it is the law for you to use your right turning signal. Do you think you can be mindful of that next time? So masked therapist. Every time I talk to you, you kind of blow me away a little bit. That's why I wanted you (laughs) on my episode today. And we're towards the end of my episode today. But I really do want to thank you for coming on and just sharing your valuable perspectives because you really do educate me a lot. And I hope that you educated some of my listeners today too. Is there any final thought you want to share with anyone who's listening, who's trying to figure it out, who really does care to be culturally humiliated, as you put it, or just get it? Just get it somehow. Humbly humble, not humbled. humiliated. Well, you use that word, but humbled bad. I like is better. <laughs> I like I like humbled a little better too. I'm all about tact. It's just my thing. <laughs> culturally yes, humbled. We want to be culturally humbled. Humbled. You know? Okay, so let's talk about your final message to the world. <laughs> what do you want my, them to hear? My final message is to the world. It needs to be a part two, Angela. I know. <laughs> You're like, dang it, I have so much more to say, but I don't have time for all of it, so we got to stop here. Sorry. (laughs) And so that's my final message. And (laughs) what I leave to your listeners is this. Um, Michelle Obama has a podcast that was released at the end of July. I want your listeners to go and listen to it because her most recent podcast release was about her discussing her low-grade depression that she was having during the pandemic and the racial injustice and social justice movement that is happening here across the globe. And one thing that she pointed out is this, is that people are living in a state of fear. And when you live in a state of fear, you react irrationally. If we can humble ourselves to admit that we are all in some way are living in a sense of uncertainty and fear and anxiety or sadness, then we can try to reach a place where we can discuss how we can support each other in our fears. Because racial injustice, systemic racism, Racial profiling has been moving through the United States and the world based on the powers to be fears. And now we must humble ourselves to be able to acknowledge our fears, our anxiety, our sadness, the uncertainty, and support each other in it instead of trying to block each other from thriving. It is enough in this world for all of us to succeed. We do not have to set up arbitrary barriers and stops to be able to stop people from thriving and living as an individual and a collective community. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you always. You always enlighten me. So this has been... Angela Skirtu with the About Sex Podcast. You can find me at 